I heard the story once of a, of a woman who, who went to the doctor. Had, she was having some very strange symptoms, and the doctor got her blood work back and came into the room with her and had a serious look on her face, on his face, and, and told her, I, I hate to tell you this, but you have rabies. And this was a time when that was very serious, and he was explaining that to her, and he went to get her some other information or some medication or something that was gone. When he came back in, he noticed she had gotten a notepad out, and she was thoughtfully making a list of names. And, and he told her, he said, you know, this, this is a serious situation, but I, I don't think it's time for you to make out your will just yet. And she said, no, 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 doctor, I'm not, I'm not making out my will. This is the list of the people I want to bite while I still have this ailment. That, you know, and that, that might be funny, but it's also a little bit true in that it's a good example of how we tend to treat people. Not that most of us are biters after a certain age, but the way you naturally just normally tend to treat people, you tend to treat people the way they treat you, right? If people are good toward you, you're probably pretty good toward them. But if people are not so good to you, if you feel like those people don't treat you well, well, probably if you're like me, you can return serve in that manner as well. And as Christians, we are instructed over and over again in the Bible, we're, we're called to a higher standard. We are supposed to return good, even toward people who are evil toward us. During the Civil War, early in those days, a, a junior officer on Robert E. Lee's staff uh, wrote that he was shocked one day when he heard General Lee speak in glowing terms of his fellow officer, another general, who kind of hated Robert E. Lee. And when this officer had a chance to speak to General Lee, he said, General, pardon me, but do you know that that man you just spoke so highly of is like your worst enemy? He never misses an opportunity to slander you. General Lee said, yes, I'm aware, but I was asked to give my opinion of him. I was not asked to give his opinion of me. Returning good. Returning a blessing when someone pays evil toward us is, is difficult. But it's the divine response. It is how God treated us when, when we paid evil toward him. He responded with the goodest of the goods by sending his son to, to pay the penalty we deserve for our sin. And when, when we return evil for evil, it's easy. It comes very natural. 
But make no mistake, God hates it. Well, this morning we're going to study 1 Samuel chapter 10. And at the beginning, we're going to read a story of David repaying good toward evil. And there's a lesson in that for us, but really it's just kind of the setup so we can get to the the, sort of the main thrust of this chapter. I'll show you what I mean as we get there. Let's read all of 2 Samuel chapter 10. 2 Samuel chapter 10 reads this way. Now it happened afterwards that the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanun, his son, became king in his place. And then David said, I will show kindness to Hanun, the son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent some of his servants to console Hanun concerning his father. But when David's servants came to the land of the Ammonites, the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun their lord, Do you really think that David is honoring your father by sending consolers to you? Hasn't David sent his servants to you in order to search the city and spy it out so that he can overthrow it? So Hanun took David's servants and shaved off half their beards and cut off their garments in the middle as far as the hips or the waist and sent them away. When they told it to David, he sent to meet them for the men were greatly humiliated and the king said, stay at Jericho until your beards grow and then return. Verse 6. Now when the sons of Ammon saw that they had become odious to David, the sons of Ammon sent and hired the Arameans of Beth Rahab and the Arameans of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Maacah with 1,000 men, and the men of Tob with 12,000 men. When David heard of that, he sent Joab and all the army, the mighty men. The sons of Ammon came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the city, while the Arameans of Zobah and Rehob were, and the men of Tob and Maacah were by themselves in the field. Now when Joab saw that the battle was set against him in front and in the rear, he selected from all the choice men of Israel and he arrayed them against the Arameans. But the remainder of the people he placed in the hand of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the sons of Ammon. Verse 11. And Joab said, If the Arameans are too strong for me, then you shall come help me. But if the sons of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will come to help you. Be strong and let us show ourselves courageous for the sake of our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what is good in his sight. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to the battle against the Arameans and the Arameans fled before him. When the sons of Ammon saw that the Arameans fled, they also fled before Abishai and entered their city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the sons of Ammon and came to Jerusalem. When the Arameans saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together. And Hadadezer sent and and brought out the Arameans who were beyond the river, and they came to Hilam. And uh, Shobach, the commander of the army of Hadadezer, led them. Now when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and he crossed the Jordan and he came to Halam and he fought the Arameans uh, and the Arameans arrayed themselves to meet David and fought David, fought against him. But the Arameans fled before Israel. 
And David killed 700 charioteers of the Arameans and 40,000 horsemen and struck down Shobak, the commander of their army, and he died there. When all the king's servants of Hadadezer saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and served Israel. And so the Arameans feared to help the sons of Ammon anymore. There's our passage. That, that chapter opens with news that the king of the Ammonites has died. We're told his name in verse 2. His name is Nahash. And if you've been, if you've been here through both, excuse me, through both books of Samuel, or you've been reading them and you're a, you have a really good memory, that name might ring a bell because we've met Nahash before. Nahash is the Hebrew word for snake. That's probably his, his nickname that Israel gave him. Old Nahash, the snake of Ammon. We met this guy in 1 Samuel chapter 11. Not a nice person. In 1 Samuel chapter 11, Nahash uh, put a, an Israelite city named Jabesh Gilead under siege. And what that means is his army surrounded that city as to not let any supplies in. And then in that way, he would starve them into submission. And here's how nice of a guy Nahash was. He refused, even after Israel cried, uncle, or excuse me, the men of Jabesh Gilead, even when the people of that, of that city cried, uncle, we give, he said, I'm still not going to uh, undo the siege unless you let me gouge out the right eye of every man in the city. Nice guy, right? The first thing King Saul ever did as king was get, really for the first time in a very long time, a united Israelite army together to go to Jabesh Gilead, rescue that city, and defeat Nahash, the snake of Ammon. Since that time, Nahash has behaved himself. And so when we get the report that Nahash has died and David is going to send condolences to his son, we're not supposed to picture David being all that broken up that Nahash is no longer amongst the living. David's not crying himself to sleep at night, okay? He hasn't ordered the flags to be flown at half-staff or anything. What David is doing is being a diplomat. He's showing wisdom. David is well aware what kind of person Nahash was, what kind of guy his son Hanun is. David knows Nahash only behaved himself he was only good. He was only loyal to David because he felt like he had no choice. But David does something that's respectful and, and wise. He sends a delegation to pay his respects to this nation. Even though he, he didn't really like Nahash, they weren't friends. You know, it's wise we, you, we really don't have to, like, talk bad about foreign leaders when they die or even our own people, leaders of our own country when they die. That's something I think, I hope we go back to 
someday. Like right now, when the Queen of England dies and like half of our country trips over themselves seeing who can spit the loudest on her grave because of, right? And, and next time when it's somebody from the left that dies, people on our side will do the same thing because like if you say anything good uh, about somebody we disagree with, you'll be called disloyal. So we have this, we have this need to say terrible stuff about people who have died. Like, that ain't great. You know what I mean? David, he goes and he pays good toward a man who had treated Israel with evil. He behaved himself over the last few decades. But it's smart and it's biblical. Nahash would have loved to rip David's eyes out if he could have. But David still goes and pays his respects. The Apostle Paul in Romans instructed us this way. He said, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people. I emphasize the all because I think Paul means even the knuckleheads. Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 5, after he taught us this whopper, it's not on the screen, listen to this. Jesus said, but I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. I think he meant that, by the way. Then in explanation, Jesus says this, if you only love the people that love you, so what? It's a loose translation. What reward do you get for that? That's the way tax collectors act. If you only greet, and that word for greet is, is like accept socially. If you only greet your own kind of people, so what? Like even pagans live that way. We are called to a much higher standard. Being good, acting good, doing good toward people who are evil toward us. It doesn't make us suckers. It doesn't make us soft. It makes us like Jesus. Now, unfortunately, I can't tell you that if you return good toward people who do evil toward you, that you will change them. Because it doesn't always happen. Look, I'll show you. The next thing we read in this story, the second part of verse 2 through verse 5, we read the story of the really awful way that the new king of Ammon, a guy named Hanun, treats David's delegation that he sends in good faith. Um, as is often the case, what happens to Hanun is he listens to bad advice. And I think I know where the bad advice comes from. See, Nahash, the snake, the guy who's been king for at least 20 years, he learned that the best thing we can do is just sort of pay tribute to Israel, let them be the boss, not make any waves, and they will let us like survive and stay in control in our little area. But I guarantee you, the people underneath Nahash did a whole lot of this. Boy, if I was king, you think I'd be paying tribute to those Israelites 
There ain't no nod, not on my watch, buddy. You let an Israelite show up around here. I'll do some eye gouging, right? It's really easy to be tough when you're not the one actually making the decisions, right? We all have yacht two friends. You know what I do? You know what you ought to do, right? Well, all of a sudden, the guy who's been making all the decisions dies. And suddenly everybody under him, they become like the dog that chases cars the one day he actually catches the car, right? What happens when the dog finally gets in front of the car? It doesn't go great, right? All of a sudden, the Yatu friends are now in control. So Hanun finds himself in a situation where he either has to look like he's been lying and just blowing smoke all those years, or he's got to act like he said he would act. And his friends are telling him, oh, you can't take this from David. He's just sending spies. And it, it's, it would be impossible for me to overstate the level of humiliation uh, 10th century B.C. Jews would have felt uh, being treated in the way they were treated. We're told that he shaves off half their beards. Uh, by law, the law of Moses, uh, Israelite men were not supposed to shave their beards unless they had taken some sort of religious vow or something. Uh, so having half of them shaved is a clear indication they didn't do this on their own. They were forcibly, uh, this was forcibly done to them against their will. Then picture this, their garments, says, were cut in the middle up to their waist. I picture this. They wear like tunics, what looks like a robe. And so the middle, either in the front or the back or both, the material was cut away up to their waist. And then they were sent walking home with the parts of their bodies exposed they would most want covered. Uh, They had to walk home again with like a sign over their head that said, I have been powerlessly abused against my will. In verse 5, when David hears and tells him to stay down the hill from Jerusalem and Jericho, David's not saying, I don't want any bearded, beardless weaklings in my capital. Nothing like that. David is being compassionate. He's saying, why don't you, he gives him paid time off. He says, why don't you stay down there till your beard's grow and give yourself a couple good weeks of growth so that you don't have to feel humiliated when you walk into the capital. Well, in verse 6, the Ammonites realize they caught the car. <laughs> right? They, uh, literally what verse six, 6 says is that they had become, they realized they had become a stench to David. Like, uh-oh, we really stink to the most powerful guy in the neighborhood. And they realize now David has to react. He can't just let us do this or everyone is going to start doing stuff like this to Israel. David's going to react and they know what Nahash the snake always knew. We can't protect ourselves against Israel. So they do what would have been very common in the ancient world. They hire an army they don't have. They hire what we would call mercenaries from a different people group. Uh, They hire the Arameans. 
And so instead of paying tribute to Israel, they have to pay probably much more than that to buy an army in hopes they maybe can get right back to where they were. We're not giving, we're not given hardly any details about how the fighting goes, but we're just told, we're told this. Verse 9, Joab, that's David's head general. It's also David's nephew. Uh, Joab realizes somehow he gets himself in a pinch where he is surrounded. He's got the, the Ammonites on one side of him, the Arameans on the other side of him. He, he finds himself in a situation. Every other story of uh, General Tony McAuliffe, the, uh, the U.S. general at the Battle of the Bulge in World War II, they found themselves surrounded by Nazis. And so General McAuliffe gave, gave this little speech. He said, men, we are surrounded by the enemy. That means we have the greatest opportunity ever presented to an army. We can attack in any direction we choose. <laughs> right? That's, that's where Joab finds himself. What he does, he divides his army in half, which is usually not a great idea. He tells his brother, Abishai, you're going to, you take those guys, I'll take these guys. And then uh, before the battle begins, he gives this little speech. In verse 11, I want to read it again. He said to his brother, if the Arameans are too strong for me, then you come help me. But if the Ammonites, if the sons of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will come help you. Be strong. Let's show ourselves courageous for the sake of our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what is good in his sight. It's an agreement for like mutual aid for whichever brother needs it. Now the rest of the chapter, I won't put it on the screen again, is just a record of Israelite victory. These two brothers get out of this tight spot. Um, the Ammonites run back in their city and, and lock it up. Uh, they don't chase after the Arameans who were a powerful force in that part of the world. They go home. Then David leads the army himself against the stronger of the two nations, the Arameans. And we learn that David uh, defeats both nations. They're, not, they're subdued, but not completely. There are still flare-ups, which will set the stage for the next story uh, we will get to next time. That's our passage. And as I studied this, I became convinced that these two verses that are on the screen right now are like the whole reason this story is told and preserved. Israel fought lots of battles under David. We don't know about most of them. And we weren't told too much about this one. If you read back through that, we got, we got almost no details of the of the military action like if this was an action movie we would feel cheated because we we missed the fight scenes i think our author carried along by the holy spirit wanted this little speech preserved for readers this is the the, the heart of the passage it just doesn't make any sense by itself so he gives us just enough details. Why? So here's the speech. This is what's important. But if we read just this, we would go, 
Why does he need to give a speech like that? Oh, well, they were surrounded. Well, how'd they get surrounded? Why are they fighting? So he gives us just enough so he can give us this. I'm convinced inside this little pep talk, you and I can find some really important uh, encouragement and challenge, exhortation for living the life of faith today, for living the Christian life 3,000 years after this was written. Because in some ways, we find ourselves surrounded by enemies. We really do. As Christians, we do find ourselves surrounded by a godless society that calls, like Isaiah said, calls evil good and calls good evil. Is that true? But we have countless other enemies that we are surrounded by also. We're surrounded by what Jesus called the cares of this world. We're surrounded by the deceitfulness of riches. We are surrounded by a million different temptations unique to each of us. Some of us are surrounded by feelings of loneliness. Others of us are surrounded by so many social pressures like we would love for some, to have some loneliness. Some of us are, are surrounded by kind of a lack of purpose, like we don't know so, sort of what to do. Others of us are surrounded by so much busyness, we can't do anything we would like to do or feel like we should do. We're surrounded by so many things. And when Joab gives his brother this pep talk, when he is surrounded, when they are surrounded, I, I, I think if we read this the right way, we can find some real help. Because folks, if we're anything, we're surrounded. How do we live this Christian life well? even though we're surrounded. That's what I want to zero in on for the rest of our time. I think there's four things in this little pep talk about living the Christian life from a position of victory, even though we're surrounded. First, make sure that even though you are surrounded, don't be surrounded alone. You think in this passage, when Joab realized he was surrounded, you think he was happy that his brother was there? I'll bet he was. That he had someone he could trust? Folks, it is hard to, to be faithful as a Christian in this world. We're surrounded. It's hard when we're at our best. When we're, when we're surrounded by all these distractions and temptations there are times when, when those things seem to close in harder than normal. It's hard when we are at our best to remain faithful, to do this well. But it's nearly impossible to do it alone. 
The Christian life is a team sport. We are made to do this together. That's why uh, David's son, Solomon, who had become king after him, wrote this famously in Ecclesiastes 4. He said, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. And a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Three is even better than two. We are a culture out here, and I mean us specifically, out here on the high plains. We are a culture that values independence. I can do it myself. And frankly, you can't tell me what to do anyway. That's kind of the cloth we are cut out of. We, we don't like to show weakness. We don't like to say we need help. But the Bible says you need help. So answer me this, O Christian. When you and the Bible disagree... Who's right? Sometimes when, when we're surrounded, I mean, we're always surrounded, but sometimes when we feel it and it's our turn to struggle, we need a fellow brother or sister in Christ to help us up to help us fight off whatever enemy we're struggling against. And we we don't like to ask for help. We don't always like to be with someone else in that way. There are lots of reasons why. Sometimes we don't want to appear weak. Sometimes, frankly, we don't want someone to help us, like, resist this temptation because we don't actually want to resist the temptation. And there are other reasons you'll pick up on through the rest. But listen, we're surrounded, and it's much safer if we're not surrounded alone. Who are you with in this Christian life? You're, you're not the Lone Ranger, right? You're not the lonely superhero that nobody can get to know. You're, you're just a... You're just a person who needs other persons. You need friends who are Christians to do this with. It's hard enough together. We have, we have some small groups that meet here. If you'd like to be a part of one, please let me know. If we fill those up, I'll make some other ones, or we'll make some other ones. Um, do you have a friend you know who would, who is, who's more likely to do this alone too? Could you reach out to her, to him, to say, I think maybe we should, let's just get together once a week. Let's have lunch. Let's talk. Let's talk about how we are doing. Let's talk about what we are struggling against. What are we surrounded by? The Bible says you need that, and it's right. So, how do we live victoriously? Do this well, even though we're surrounded? First, don't be surrounded alone. Second, see the weakness, 
See the failure. See even the sin of your brother or sister only as a place where you have the opportunity to dive in and help. It's easy to see this in Joab's speech. It's basically what the speech is. Joab says, hey, the Arameans might overpower me. The Ammonites might overpower you. Whoever winds up like in a position of weakness, let's just pledge to one another, I'm going to help if it's you who are weak. Okay? Okay. And that makes perfect sense when we're talking about military battle. You might think it makes perfect sense even when we're talking about like Christian life together. Well, of course I'm going to jump in and help when, when somebody's weak. But listen, Christianity has a long history of seeing other people's weakness, failure, sin as, as something much different than a place where I can dive in and help. We have tended for years and years and years, centuries, to see other people's weaknesses as a place to draw differences, to bail out. Maybe because uh, I don't hang out with people who struggle with those kind of struggles. Or simply because subconsciously I kind of like to hear when somebody else is struggling or failing, failing because it makes me feel better about me. It's been a long time since I said this one, but it's still true. It, it feels better to feel better. It can feel good to feel better than someone else. Listen to Paul again, this time 1 Corinthians 10. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And Galatians 6, bear one another's burdens, and don't miss this part. This is the part of the verse that gets left out. Bear one another's burdens, and thereby, and in that way, fulfill the law of Christ. You know what tends to happen in Christian circles sometimes when someone fails and someone weeks, someone is weak, someone sins, someone whatever, we feel like, hey, at least I don't struggle with something like that. Ain't God proud of me because I haven't done that. What Paul says, you want to fulfill the law of Christ? Go help that person instead of feeling smugly happy that you haven't failed like they did. Thank God that he didn't treat us the way we treat our fallen brothers and sisters sometimes. Numbers 1 and 2 go together. We're not supposed to be surrounded alone. It might be that I need someone else when I am weak, when I am struggling, when I am whatever. But listen, even if I'm not, somebody else needs me. So we need to make ourselves accessible, available, regularly. Another thing that is true about this, if we wait till we are struggling and we don't know anyone well already, it's really hard. It's really hard to say, hey, I haven't talked to you in six months. 
Can I tell you about my porn addiction? Like, that ain't happening. We need to be, we need to be in this together. Third, so don't be surrounded alone. See your brother or sister's weakness as a place where you can help. And third, I'm going to let Joab's words just stand alone. Then, when you're not alone, you're ready to give aid, then here's how we fight. Be strong. Let's show ourselves courageous for the sake of our people. Now, what did that mean between Joab and Abishai? Excuse me one sec. Joab says, hey, they might whip me. They might start whipping you. Okay, however this goes, this is our plan. We got a plan for mutual aid. And when the battle starts, here's here's the way we're going to fight. We're going to fight and let so other people see our courage. Why might that have been important during the battle? Was it important for the rest of their men to see them fighting courageously? If those guys turn tail and run, do you think that would have had effect on the rest of the, right? No, no, no. We're going to let other people see us fighting the good fight. Now, how does that, how does that apply to us in this Christian life thing we're trying to do? First, we're, we are, we're going to be strong and show ourselves courageous, but we have to make sure that we're standing on the right strength. Our strength doesn't come from ourselves. Our strength doesn't come from our self-discipline and our ability to, no. Our strength comes from the Lord, the Bible tells us. Our strength comes because even when I was weak, he sent his son to die in my place. That's the source of our strength. And actually, his strength is made perfect in my weakness. When I admit I am weak, when I admit I need others, when I admit I can't do this on my own, that's when God shows himself to be strong. And then, when we really, becoming a Christian is accepting weakness, right? Nobody comes to Christ because they think they're nailing this thing down here, right? You only come to Christ because you think you need a savior. Nobody needs saved if they're strong, right? The lifeguards at the pool in the summer don't jump in to save the strong swimmers, right? You jump in to save someone who is failing, who's dying. That's why we got into this Christianity thing, because we understood our weakness, we embrace our weakness even when we fight with strength because it's not our strength with which we fight. It, it's his. And really, here's our superpower as Christians. You ready? You didn't even know you had a superpower. Like, finally, we're getting somewhere here. Here's our superpower as Christians. After Jesus Christ died, he actually walked out of that grave. That's your superpower. And listen, I don't have time to do it today, but there is plenty of historical evidence that that actually happened. I would love to share that with you. 
Here's why that's our superpower. If that's really true, then all this stuff is true. Like if he died and came back to life in his own power, the rest of this stuff is all true. Here's why that's our superpower. Because he also promised you get the same thing one day for you. That you will live even though you die. Here's what that does for us. It lets us know this world cannot take away from me anywhere close to what's already been promised to me. I can only get so low. In some ways, we can look at what we are surrounded by and kind of go, you can't hurt me. Because in an ultimate way, it can't. In some ways, maybe our highest calling in this Christian life thing where the rubber meets the road, maybe our main job is to live like we actually believe this stuff. We live in a way that shows our courage that his promises are real, that my resurrection is guaranteed and imminent. So that, yeah, I can be surrounded, but I can't be defeated. Folks, my brothers and sisters, this world is a fight sometimes, isn't it? So you know what we should do? Fight. But we should fight the good fight. When I say, hang in there and fight, man, I don't mean say mean stuff on Facebook. It helps. That's not what I mean. Fight. Listen, fight for your marriage. Fight. Fight to love the spouse, to actually, genuinely love the spouse you have. Fight for the hearts of your children regardless of how they treat you in return. Fight for your own contentment. It is what you want, and you have enough to learn contentment. Fight. We're surrounded. We need to fight together. So don't be surrounded alone. See someone else's weakness as a way you can pour some of your relative strength into their weakness. And then together, let's fight this thing to the glory of the one who's already won the victory. And then finally, fourth, don't confuse temporal with eternal victories. At the end of Joab's speech in verse 12, he said, all right, bro, we're going to get together. You fight that way, I fight this way. We're going to help each other no matter what. Let's be courageous. Get out there and be courageous. And then at the end, he said, and we are guaranteed to win. Is that what he said? No, he said, and the Lord's going to do what the Lord thinks is best. That's all we got for this life. May the Lord do what he thinks is right. 
We don't have promises that if we believe the right way and behave the right way, God will make everything work out the way we want. We just don't have that. If we had that promise, then John the Baptist deserves his head back, right? What we have is God promises to do what's right. And sometimes what God decides is right will feel like what we think is right. Sometimes what God thinks is right is another really good opportunity for us to suffer well and courageously. There are a few things more encouraging than a Christian who suffers for the glory of Christ. Sometimes that's what God thinks is right. Don't confuse temporal, earthly, temporary victories with the eternal when we are guaranteed. We'll wind up disillusioned when we, when we confuse those. Again, look at what Paul writes. This is 2 Timothy. It's the last thing Paul ever wrote, this little book. And he said, therefore, this is why I endure everything. Paul's in prison awaiting his execution that he knows is coming. And he says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, for the church, for the people I'm in this with. Because they need to see my courage. It's not because I like the idea of being executed. I'm not having a great time in here. But I'm not surrounded alone. And someone else needs me. So that they too might obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here's a trustworthy saying. If we died with him on that cross, and we did, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. But if we disown him, he will disown us. But don't worry. Where we are faithless, he remains faithful faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Family, we don't have guarantees that we won't be sent away humiliated. You know why Joab says, you know, God's going to do what he thinks is right? He knew he could lose. You know how he knew that? Because he just had friends that had to walk home with half a beard and their business showing. And they hadn't done anything wrong. We don't have any promise. We might not be humiliated and mistreated either. But we shouldn't go through it alone. We have a God who will walk through those things with us. We should have other people to walk through those things with us as well so that we can help one another in the places where we are weak, so that we can show ourselves ready to fight in the right way for his glory, returning good for evil, which takes way more strength than returning evil for evil. And then one day, like Peter said, when the chief shepherd appears, maybe we will learn, we, we, we will learn for sure that we, we have fought on the right side for the right reasons, even those precious few times together to his glory. Let's go fight. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for this uh, ancient story and that pep talk. I know I needed it. I'm sure there are others here who needed it as well. Thank you that you 
didn't treat us the way we tend to treat people who sin against us. You did not return evil for evil. You returned with the best of the good. Father, help us to identify, to find other people to be in the fight with, to see each other's weaknesses as places where we can help, to fight with courage that's contagious, and to not confuse temporary victories and losses with eternal victory that's been guaranteed and is actually the source of our strength. Make that a reality in us, through us, for one another and for you. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us and we'll finish our time together?